Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. As war rages in Ukraine, we head to its second largest city, Kharkiv, to speak to one woman caught in the middle of the fighting in that city of 1.5 million people to understand how much life has changed in just six days. As President Joe Biden announced Russian flights will be banned from U.S. airspace in the State of the Union address tonight, joining Canada and the EU, we find out what impact the war is having on global aviation. But first, a man who fought for years for tougher sanctions against Vladimir Putin and Russian oligarchs says tough new measures introduced in the last week will hit the Kremlin where it hurts. But does Bill Browder think it will stop the war? been watching U.S. President Biden deliver his first State of the Union address in the last hour. It seems remarkable, you know, a week ago, it was hard to imagine he'd be delivering that address in the shadow of a war. But here we are. Uh, the blue and yellow flag of Ukraine, or at least the colors of the flag, was were evident um, today as he gave his speech in the room. Some had little Ukrainian flags, were flying them. Ukraine's ambassador to the U.S., Oksana Markarova, was given a standing ovation. It just shows you how much has changed in the last week? Well, Biden used the moment to tell the American people that he condemns Russia for its invasion of its neighbor and telling Vladimir Putin that he must pay a price for its unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. Six days ago, Russia's Vladimir Putin sought to shake the very foundations of the free world, thinking he could make it bend to his menacing ways. But he badly miscalculated. He thought he could roll into Ukraine and the world would roll over. Instead, he met with a wall of strength he never anticipated or imagined. He met Ukrainian people. Biden also announcing the U.S. will close airspace to Russian planes joining allies such as Canada. As Biden was speaking, though, Russia continued a bombardment of civilian areas in Ukraine today. Besieged cities bracing for more attacks on Wednesday as Russian commanders are facing fierce Ukrainian res- resistance and intensifying the bombardment of urban areas. This is what happened today in the eastern city of Kharkiv, a city of about 1.5 million people, the second biggest in Ukraine near the Russian border. international community continues to try to get Russia to stop. Today, Canada announced it will expand its sanctions to target more Russian oligarchs close to Putin and businesses. We understand the stakes of this great conflict between democracy and dictatorship. The battleground today is Ukraine, but this is our fight too. President Putin has made a grave and historic error. This is not the behavior of a superpower. This is the last gasp of a failing kleptocracy. And Russia's invasion has left it economically isolated, its economy in free fall. So what impact is that really having on Vladimir Putin and his cronies? Few are better placed to answer that question than my next guest. Bill Browder is CEO of Hermitage Capital Management, head of the Global Magnitsky Justice Campaign, author of Red Notice, and a man often called Vladimir Putin's number one enemy. He joins me now from London, England. Good to be here. I imagine there's a lot of competition for that title now as number one enemy, but just from your perspective, because you've been watching this for so long, how would you sum up the last six days, just the international response, the sanctions, everything that's been done? It's, it's unprecedented beyond any, anybody's expectations. 
and particularly Vladimir Putin's expectations. Uh, you know, if I look at, at all the developments, what Vladimir Putin has done is not that unexpected. He's, he's, he has invaded countries before. He did Georgia in 2008. He took Crimea in 2014. Um, he flattened Chechnya in, uh, when he was just prime minister in uh, in, in year 2000. What's unexpected is the West's reaction. And, and all those previous atrocities that Putin committed, um, there was no consequence. We didn't do anything in the West. This time around, there's been a, just an enormous consequence. The, the entire system of, of uh, economics with Russia has been cut off. And, and, uh, and I think that we're just seeing the beginnings of it right now. I'm, I'm, uh, in terms of the sanctions, in terms of cutting Russia off of SWIFT, in terms of the freezing of the money in the central bank, in terms of the oligarchs, in terms of the airplanes, it's uh, uh, everything. It's, it's, it's like nothing I've ever seen before. You've been calling for measures like this for years. Which of these sanctions has most surprised you or pleasantly surprised you, I should say? I would say that, that the oligarch sanctions that are being rolled out and the um, commitments by the Western governments to freeze and seize yachts and planes and villas and accounts of, of these oligarchs is really the thing that, that hits Putin right between the eyes. Why is that? Because there's always this idea that maybe Putin decides who gets to make money or not. I mean, I think we, we know that story very well. Uh, what kind of pressure can his circle, if they start to be preyed upon, as we're seeing now, maybe that's not the right choice of words, but what kind of pressure could they put on Putin if their wealth starts to disappear and their ability to move starts to disappear? Well, this is the interesting um, thing that most people don't understand. It's not that the oligarchs are going to put pressure on Putin, but these oligarchs are nominees for Vladimir Putin. They hold his money. So when you're sanctioning an oligarch, you're sanctioning Vladimir Putin. If you freeze the money of an oligarch, you're freezing Vladimir Putin's money. And since it's his money and he kills for money, this is what he cares about most. After all the examples over all the years that we've talked about, the Crimeas, the Donbasses, the assassinations in London, the Syrias, the Chechnyas, the Georgias, the Moldovas, why now? Why now? Do you, why do you think suddenly the whole world just woke up and said, wait a second, this is unacceptable? <clears throat> well, there's several things. One is that um, the United States played it differently than they've ever played it before. In the past, there was always some plausible deniability who started it in, in Georgia. Was it the Georgians firing first or the, or the Russians? Um, you know, there's all, there was always some, some strange twist to the whole thing. But in this particular case, the United States used their intelligence, put it out there every day, beat the drum every day and said, Russia's going to invade, Russia's going to invade, Russia's going to invade. Here's how many soldiers, here's what they're going to do. And by the time Putin invaded, all of his nonsense was just completely discarded. And, and the other thing which is interesting is that all the apologists, all the appeasers, the um, Germans and the French, they all went to Putin and said, you know, don't invade, don't invade, don't invade. And Putin said, oh, don't worry, I'm not invading. And then they, they invaded and they felt completely lied to and disrespected. And so you ended up in the situation where the information was all clear. There was this personal insult to, to heads of state from some very important countries. And then, of course, most importantly, is the atrocities that we see played out in real time against an innocent country that um, didn't ask for any of this. And and I think it's all it's for Putin. This is totally unexpected. He never he, there were never any consequences to him before. And now all of a sudden 
the entire world is treating him like the pariah that he should have always been recognized as. I mean, you're very familiar with the power structure in Russia, the Sergei Lavrovs, the Putins and so forth. What would, it, what would the impact on them be to find themselves within a period of a week as sort of another, and I don't want to, I'm going to exaggerate, forgive the hyperbole, but as sort of another, um, another North Korea? Well, I think this is, this is totally, you know, a new experience for them. And, and, and it's also really an important um, thing that's happening to the Russian people. Putin's pitch to the Russian people after when he came to power was that during the previous regime, the Yeltsin regime, it was chaos, it was hyperinflation, it was economic contraction, it was total, you know, just terrible life. And he said, I'm going to bring economic order, I'm going to bring you a better life. And, um, you know, stick with me, you may have to like give up a few of your liberties and freedoms, but it's all going to be, you know, no more of that chaos. And now all of a sudden, he's brought the chaos unilaterally to the people based on his single decision. It wasn't anyone else who did this. This is not an arbitrary thing that happened. It's not something that happened as a result of, of outside events. This is Putin's own doing. And so he's basically broken his contract with the Russian people. Now, his contract with the Russian people doesn't matter because his people don't elect him. I mean, you know, in, you know, in theory, they, 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 they're supposed to elect him, but in practice, it's all one big fudged, corrupt, non-democratic thing, you know, cheated, cheating elections. But, but it's still, uh, it's, a, it's a huge break with the past in terms of how he relates to the Russian people. And the only way he's going to be able to move forward now is with total totalitarian you know, crackdown because the people are not going to be happy with this. People are going to be happy with not getting money from the banks. They're not going to be happy with the prices going up 100%. They're not going to be happy with an economic contraction that's probably going to be more like a depression than a recession. It's not going to be good. You said this before. You don't think this has anything to do with Ukraine and NATO and greater Russia. And, and you think it's, you've said it's all a bit of a Putin smokescreen to stay in power. That's exactly right. So Putin. Putin has been a dictator for 22 years. He's stolen an enormous amount of money from the people that should have been spent on medicine and, and, and education and all, you know, public services. Instead, it's in yachts and planes and villas. And people are grumbling, and, and, and they're grumbling everywhere. It's not just Russia. They're grumbling in Kazakhstan and in Belarus and, and Azerbaijan. And what he's seen is that in neighboring countries, the people are starting to try to overthrow their leaders. They did so in 18 months ago in Belarusia, and it only hap didn't happen because Putin sent his own troops in. <laughs> it did happen in uh, Kazakhstan. The um, uh, Nazarbayev family was kicked out, and Putin has seen the writing on the wall, and doesn't you know he knows that, that they're coming for him next, and. The best way to make sure that that doesn't happen is to do something dramatic and, and cut, you know, dig into the dictator's playbook. And the main thing you do in a situation like this is start a war. And that's what he's done. He's got nothing to, you know, the rhetoric around NATO and Ukraine, that's all just for, for his pitch to the public. But um, that, 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 that there's, in my mind, there's nothing to that at all. It's just purely a desperate little man who's been there for 22 years who understands that if ever, at the moment he loses power, he goes to jail loses his money and probably dies. And therefore he's got to stay in power until the end of his natural life. And the only way to do that is by starting a war. I'm back with Bill Browder, CEO of Hermitage Capital Management and head of the Global Magnitsky Justice Campaign, author of Red Notice. You would know well how these sanctions will hit the inner circle, uh, Putin's inner circle. Do you think that he's in any position now to find some way to uh, 
to retreat? Putin doesn't have a reverse a, a reverse gear. He just he can only go forward. He's a man who has to show power, strength. He, he's he's living in a prison yard culture where um, he absolutely can't show any weakness, and so there's no chance of him retreating. It doesn't matter what we do; he's not going to retreat. The main reason for sanctions is to basically cut him off, so that eventually he has no more money left to um, to wage this war. It's a very expensive war. And um, uh, the central bank reserves are now frozen. Hopefully, all the offshore money of the oligarchs will be frozen. Hopefully, all sorts of resources and money that are coming from the West, with all these Western companies stopping doing business in Russia, will be frozen. And as a result, one can hope that he just runs out of money. That's how we ended up um, winning the Cold War. That's how it was because they ran out of money. And that has to be the strategy here. We always read about how much money he's stashed away for this very moment. In fact, I think the last time we spoke, we talked about his sort of war chest. Uh, how quickly does that war chest vanish under these circumstances? Well, so his, in theory, he's got a $640 billion war chest to the central bank, but most of that money is held in, in, in currencies that are frozen, so he doesn't have access to that money. And um, the sovereign wealth fund is frozen. And then the oligarchs' money, where he holds money is, uh, offshore, is also frozen. So it's very quickly he's going to run out of money. It's, it's, there's no question. What have you made of kind of companies? So, I mean, we've seen governments obviously unite, but also Western companies now who have been reluctant to do much in, in Russia over the years are now also packing up and leaving, which might be an even worse sign for the future for Russia. Well, I think it's, I think it's a very strong sign for, for um, containing Putin because they're all doing it now. I mean, I, I could have never imagined in, in my wildest dreams that BP would, would give up their stake in Rosneft or, or that some, uh, uh, the shipping companies would stop picking up uh, loads in, 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 in Russian ports or, or, you know, Warner Brothers stops making, uh, delivering movies in Russia. It's all, it's, it's all very, um, uh, it's all very unprecedented and, and dramatic and helpful to this cause. And I think that, that we're just seeing the beginning of it, that you're going to see more and more and more and more. And um, uh, I mean, basically no Western company can, can uh, legitimately, carry on doing business with Russia the way that this has now been positioned. And so I think it's, it's extremely powerful. This is what ended apartheid was the disinvestment and total blockade of economic activity with us with South Africa. I can imagine, I mean, this is an industry, you know, very well, but I imagine even foreign investment in Russia will, will dry up. Oh, there's no, there's not gonna be any foreign investment yeah. at all. Now the, the only lifeline that, 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 that these people might have is, um, is from China. Uh, China may may have be the lender of last resort, but but uh, China is not going to do that on terms that are going to be very attractive to Russia. So I think that it's it's all it's it's all pretty terrible for Vladimir Putin. One always talks about what it might be like to back someone like Vladimir Putin into a corner, and I think the fear is that that whatever happens is going to happen to the people of Ukraine. When you look ahead to the next week, month. Do you have any sense that this is going to get better before it gets much worse? Well, I think that, that we've seen the best we're going to see. The Ukrainians in the first five days have fought off the Russians valiantly, but um, and made made Putin look ridiculous. Like you know, all this this you know this columns of tanks all burned up and cars running out of gas and I mean, the whole thing. Putin looks ridiculous. Um, and he can't stand being humiliated. And so I think you're going to end up seeing him really, you know, lashing out to, to show how 
brutal he is. And so I, I'm, you know, I, I'm sort of weeping in advance for, for the Ukrainian people because I know what's in store for them. And it's not good. When you look back at all the years you've been fighting this fight, is there any gratification at all in the I told you so of the last week? No, I, 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 there's no gratification. All I can do is feel horrible about what's happening and, and terrified for the Ukrainians and terrified for ourselves about what's going to happen going forward. I mean, this is this man is is a madman with nuclear weapons, and God knows he he would use them if if that was his ultimate last resort. And I, it doesn't matter what I was saying for the last ten years. All that matters is what's going to happen now, and and I don't have a good feeling. Yeah, I think I think everyone shares that that everyone shares that sense of deep unease. It's even hard to describe to some extent. Bill Browder, thank you so much again for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Ukraine's president spoke to the European Parliament today via video link, making his case for his country's membership in the EU, the European Union, asking them to fast track. The EU Council uh, listened to him. He was speaking through an interpreter who became overcome with emotion while trying to relay Zelensky's words. Have a listen. We are fighting just for our land and for our freedom. Despite the fact that all large cities of our country are now blocked, nobody is going to enter and intervene with our freedom and country. And believe you me. One of the reasons behind some of the emotion from Zelensky was a Russian bombing on Tuesday of Freedom Square in the cultural heart of Ukraine's second largest city, Kharkiv, and what officials said was a deadly and, quote, cruel attack. The bombardment has continued in Kharkiv. We've had reports this morning of fighting near a military hospital. Here's some sounds from that fighting over the last 24 hours. Now, it's hard to imagine that just a week ago, this was a city at peace, a tense peace, but peace nonetheless. Joining me now from Kharkiv is Fetlana Prestupa. Svetlana, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. Thank you. I mean, we've been hearing so many reports from Kharkiv over the last 24 hours. Clearly, a lot of it, I think the whole world has now seen what happened at Freedom Square. What has it been like to be in the middle of it? What have you been doing? Uh, actually, my family and I are hiding in our apartment. Uh, we're really worried because we don't know whether to stay at home or go to the subway or the basement. We we don't feel that it's safe anywhere because the bombings occur very often. And yesterday it was a really hard day. And those rockets on the Freedom Square are real. I've seen the pictures. I've talked to my friends and people I know that witnessed that. And it, it's really awful those places where I walked just, yeah, a, a week ago that looked beautifully, now are destroyed completely. What's, I mean, I can't even imagine what the day-to-day -day existence must be like in just the last six days, what it's been like. Have you just been staying at home trying, trying to figure out what to do next? Uh, kind of. Uh, on the first day, on Thursday, the 24th of February, I went down the basement of our building, but it's really not a good place for uh, sheltering because there's uh, not much air there and you can stay alone there. 
so we decided to stay in the apartment. And because of some street battles, street combats, uh, we haven't been uh, outside for a couple of days. So we can't even go uh, shopping to buy some food or meds. Some people in our city do that, but it's really dangerous. So my family and I are in fear and we are at home. We are just finishing our food supplies that we have here and hoping that we will be able to buy some more. You're there with your mom and your sister, is that right? Yeah, yeah. My mom is here. She has some disabilities. She walks with a stick, so she can't really run fast. And we live uh, quite high. It's the 16th floor, uh, and the elevators aren't working due to some safety reasons. So it takes much time to go down and go up. Uh, and my sister is also here, her dog, her cat. We're all lying on the floor of our corridor, trying to barricade all the windows and hide from the glasses because glass shatters are extremely dangerous. And my other sister is in another district, in the city center, actually. Uh, she's with her friend there, and it's quite scary. We are trying to be in touch every minute, asking, like, is everybody okay? It's awful. I was just thinking, you know, I mean, just a week ago, you must have been living or leading a, a pretty normal life. I mean, I know we'd all been talking about the possibility, and you're very close to the Russian border for people who don't know exactly where you are, but 40 kilometers, right? But still, yeah. things change so quickly. I can't even imagine what it must be like. Actually, the first, like, science, as for me, they started in October when we got some news that Russian troops are gathering around our border uh, and I probably started uh, preparing for it in December, thinking about what should I buy, um, that I should save some money, that I should do something and check something. So it, it, it's it's really hard. Yeah, I've been thinking of war for a couple of months already. And yeah, on, on Wednesday, I'm an English teacher here in Kharkiv in our local school, private school, not for kids, for adults. Uh, on Wednesday evening, I actually had a, a nice class with my students. We left, we joked, we had a great class. We finished like at 9 p.m. I watched some TV series, went to bed, and in the morning I woke up in a completely new reality. Had you thought of leaving? Had you thought? I know. I know your mom obviously is. You're on. You know. She. She's. She walks with a cane and so. On, but did you, had you thought of 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 leaving? And, and what what was that decision like? And what made you decide you didn't? You weren't going to go. Uh, yeah, actually, I, I've been thinking of that a lot, and maybe even for more than a week because some of my friends left even before it all started. And I think for some of them, it's a good decision because one of my friends is pregnant and it's really a good idea to to run away from this, uh, from all of this. Uh, as for me, I don't know. I didn't want to leave because it's my home and I didn't do anything wrong and I, I don't see any reason for me to run. I think they should run. Russians should go away and stop all this nightmare. 
And when the war started after Thursday, we've been thinking about that a lot and talking about that a lot. And we don't know actually what to do because staying here, especially in Kharkiv, which is under a massive attack, I think the most attack, yeah, probably like the the Donetsk and Lugansk regions. Uh, But leaving is also a very high risk because people get shot, uh, cars get shot, people burn alive, people get... Russian troops get host- get, get them hostages, mm-hmm. and so on. So we, we really don't know. It's dangerous to stay, and it's dangerous to leave. We are, like, in fear, and we, we don't know what to do. I mean, I, I've spent some time in Donetsk and those areas in the past, and I, I remember just how difficult it is. People always see people leaving war zones, and, and just how, how difficult a decision is to pack up and leave. Um, it is right because it gets it's your home right it is right one of the reasons why i would like to stay because yeah this is my home and if everybody leaves it just gives the those those people who attacked us those freaking troops the 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 reason to continue doing that they would believe that people don't want this territory don't want this country and we want to prove that we do have you been i mean are you finding any comfort in the fact that the president has been very strong that the fight from the ukrainian forces has been effective Uh, is there any comfort in that for you yes sure sure our army is amazing and we totally believe in them we everybody tries to support them. Everybody transfers money. Um, a local person, I I don't know him. He's not my friend, but he's a musician here in Kharkiv. And every day he tries to buy some food, some supplies, and he drives them to uh, the soldiers, our Ukrainian soldiers, to help them and support them. Uh, I think this is really heroic because his car, he, he drives his car and the bombing starts, he risks his life, but he keeps on doing that, keeps on loaning money. Um, this is really inspiring. So the army is incredible. The people, because everybody now is doing everything they can to support each other and the country and of course, the president. I'm really proud of everyone. I'm back with Svetlana Prestupa, who an English teacher who's in the city of Kharkiv right now, a city that you may have seen today. There was a, a massive attack on a on a Freedom Square right in the heart of the city today. Uh, one that even had the president calling, talking about war crimes today. Uh, Svetlana has been with her mom and her sister on the 16th floor of their building, um, keeping their heads down trying to figure out what to do next while all this war rages around them. I know it's about 7.18, 7.19 in the morning there, Svetlana. Is it easier during the day? Is it harder at night? Um, it depends. It's it's hard to say because all those days were different. And uh, for example, this night was quite quiet, but the day was awful. And before that, yeah, I guess we had some 
missiles at night. Um, so it's it's really hard to say because they occur at different times with different regularity, and uh, it, it, it's really hard to think of like so-called schedule because when we hear silence we try to grab our coats and run outside to buy some food but when we just open our door and step out we hear the bombing again and we run back to the flat so it's it's really hard to say when it's going to happen next in in a minute in an hour we don't know so you you make it down the 16 floors get outside and then all of a sudden the sounds of i mean you must always be just waiting to hear the sounds of something flying yeah we're doing exactly that and it, and it's even yeah. scary to go to the bathroom or to the kitchen to grab some water or food because we don't know whether we sh- should go somewhere near the windows and risk our life or maybe stay keep on staying in the corridor and lying and covering our heads I mean, you'll have to, you'll have to get food eventually, right? You'll have to, I guess, some, I can't even, I can't even picture what it, what it would be like to try to make that decision. Just picturing what the city must look like. How far are you from, from supplies? How far would you have to go? Uh, there are a couple of uh, shops uh, in my district. Uh, of course, many are closed and those that work have very huge lines and people have to uh, stand in lines for an hour, two, three, and uh, everybody says that uh, all the sources say that uh, the the most dangerous situation where the bombing starts is if you're in the street. So actually, when you're going shopping for food, you're risking your life. You're like a target for those rockets. What would you like, you're speaking to a Canadian audience right now, what would you like us to know and how can we help? Thank you so much for everything you are doing already for the information and so on. We really appreciate it. Probably please keep on believing in us because we are a peaceful nation and we we didn't attack anyone and we are fighting bravely. Everybody here, the president, the army, the people, volunteers, doctors, children, everyone. And uh, spread the information. And if you can influence somehow, I guess we really need to cover the air because this is yeah. the, the, the most awful part because civilians are getting killed every day. Svetlana, I know a week ago you woke up and you went and taught your English class uh, a week ago today, Wednesday. What will you do today? Probably I would stay in the corridor and listen to all the sounds, uh, try to maintain uh, myself, my family, drink some water, eat some food. And it's our Ukrainian routine nowadays. Uh, quite quite often we try to text each other. We ask, like, how are you? And, of course, it, this question means, are you alive? And we're all in touch. We're all trying to support each other. 
We are even trying to joke and keep our morality, keep our spirit up. So our people is our people are amazing, and I'll try to continue keeping the spirit up, believing and living. I hope. Well, Svetlana, I, I, given the circumstances, you're sitting in in a hallway waiting right right now, hiding, uh, staying safe. Thank you so much for sharing your story with with everyone in this country. I know that people here need to know what's happening for real, what this is really like to be in the middle of something as awful as this is. And uh, I think I truly appreciate your time. And thank you. Obviously, we wish you health and we wish you safety. And um, we can only hope that this ends soon. Thank you so much. Svetlana Prostupa. Speaking to us tonight from Kharkiv in eastern Ukraine, uh, Ukraine's second largest city, a city of 1.5 million people under siege in some ways from Russian forces uh, over the last six days. Uh, today, there was a dramatic explosion of Russian missiles raining down on Freedom Square at the cultural heart of the city. Um, Svetlana telling us that she's been essentially lying in the hallway with her mom and sister for the past five days, afraid to go to the bathroom, afraid to go to the kitchen afraid to go outside, 16 floors up, elevators broken, afraid to go get food. That is the very, very, very awful truth about what living in war is like. It's been kind of hard to keep up with all the measures that have been introduced against Russia in the last six days. One of the latest from Canada, a ban of Russian-owned or registered ships from Canadian waters and Canadian ports. So from sea to sky, many countries are clamping down on Russia's freedom of movement these days. In his State of the Union address tonight, U.S. President Joe Biden announced it was banning Russian flights from its airspace. Canada and the European Union did that a few days ago. Russia did the same to us in return. Here's Joe Biden. Tonight... I'm announcing that we will join our allies in closing off American airspace to all Russian flights, further isolating Russia and adding additional squeeze on their economy. So what impact will all these restrictions have on air travel, airlines, cargo? Joining me to help answer those questions is John Graddock, faculty lecturer and coordinator of the Aviation Management Program at McGill University. John, thanks so much for being here tonight. Hi, Ben. It's a pleasure. So, I mean, we didn't, when we spoke earlier or when I emailed you earlier, we didn't know Joe Biden was going to announce this tonight. We thought he might. Um, what impact does the American ban have in practice? Well, I think there's not much that they're going to do. The only thing that they're shutting down is airspace around Alaska, uh, where you might have some uh, trans-Pacific flights that the Russians may be operating that may use Alaska as a uh, pit stop for uh, for fuel. Um, so that's shut down. Uh, I don't think Aeroflot or any of the other Russian carriers uh, have been flying anything into the U.S. Uh, since Sunday, I think, when Canada shut down airspace. There have been a couple of attempts, and I think we had one had to try to get around the, <laughs> the uh, ban by declaring a humanitarian emergency and, tried to, and did get through Canadian airspace, but that's the exception rather than the rule. So, uh, you know, it really is a, uh, a shutdown of airspace around, uh, around Russia. That's really the, uh, the key element of this exercise. Yeah, that was Flight 111 Aeroflot that sort of somehow snuck across the east coast of Canada on its way back from Miami on the weekend. Uh, yeah. And then apparently two, two other pilots tried the same thing and got told no way. Well, I think that, you know, I think that the, the NAVCAN got a little wise and they let one go through. Uh, but when they all start using the same excuse, uh, 
I think that's when the hammer came down and said, no way. So uh, those, air, those aircraft, subsequent aircraft were denied entry into Canada. When you take this, when you add this all up, Canada, the US, the European Union, what does this do? What I mean, clearly, it, it essentially shuts down Russian planes from flying, more or less. Well, it, you know, it, it does to a certain, you know, if you want to get out of Russia and you want to go west out of Russia, anywhere you're in Moscow or anywhere, anywhere else, the only way you're going to get out of, of Russia now is basically using, you know, is flying uh, out east or southeast uh, and then be able to, to fly uh, into those intermediate points and then get out. Uh, so, you know, Air India, as an example, is flying flights from Vancouver to Delhi and they are going over Russian airspace. Uh, so whereas Air Canada's flight from Vancouver to Delhi uh, is going via Dublin, Ireland. So and they're and they're skirting Russia altogether. So there's been a you know, there's been some, um, you know, airlines that have you know been very, very diligent in, in enforcing uh, the ban, other carriers, other countries such as India and uh, Singapore and those in the Middle East have not really banned their airspace. The airspace really has been a, a European effort and now a North American effort to uh, kind of contain the Russians. And so the Russian border, uh, their Western border with Europe uh, is now literally, uh, they're locked in. What's the impact then? I mean, what, 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 what impact does this have on Russia and why would it be seen as being an effective way of, of trying to contain Russia or hurt, hurt the economy? Well, it's a, it's a way, for, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a message that, you know, the, I think the Europeans are, are giving to the Russians that, you know, we, we have a tool that they're using now, which is really restricting airspace. Um, it, it's over and above whatever they're doing in terms of, it, of sanctions. So it's not just, you know, economic sanctions being placed. You cannot transit. I think they're going after the oligarchs. They're really saying private aircraft, Russian aircraft, whatever it is, you're not, you're going to be hemmed in or you're going to have to be, you know, find a very different and a creative way to get to your villas in Italy or to your, to your chateaus on the French Riviera uh, or to your yachts that are sitting over in, in Greece. Uh, you're not, it's not going to be an easy access. You're going to have to do something creative to get there. So it's really more of an inconvenience. Um, and I think that's where, um, you know, that over and above the sanctions, I think it's really adding up to making life much more difficult for Putin and his group of uh, oligarchs. Just to make that clear, this doesn't apply just to commercial flights. Obviously, this applies to private aircraft as well. Oh, all aircraft, all, all Russian aircraft, all run, Russian registered aircraft. Now, Russia's done so, the opposite, obviously. Oh, sorry, go ahead, John. No, and I, and I was going to say, you know, the, the, the one thing that, They've, that the, this, this, this exercise tends to do to people is that, you know, the, the economic sanctions do have an impact on aviation in Russia. What happens is that, you know, the, the Europeans and the North Americans basically said the economic sanctions are in place. So a lot of the airplanes that the Russians operate in Russia, you know, are Boeing and the Airbus airplanes. And a significant number, I'd say close to 80% of the airplanes that they do operate in Russia uh, are leased airplanes. They're not owned by the Russians. They're owned by leasing companies, and leasing companies are, you know, m you know, based all over the world, and you know, mostly in Ireland, mostly in Europe. Uh, so it was about 600 to 700 airplanes that are going to be called back by the lessors over the next 30 days, uh, and those airplanes are going to be repossessed by the lessors. So you're going to have a significantly lower number 
of airplanes flying in Russia, and it, that's going to start hampering the um, you know the Russian economy, and it's going to get the Russians a little more upset about you know the impact of these sanctions. So there is going to be a, a knockoff effect uh, from the economic sanctions on the on the aviation industry in in Russia. Now I know Russia obviously responded in kind. Uh, specifically to the EU, but also to Canada, no doubt to the US as well. What does cutting off Russian airspace um, to the rest of us mean? Now, you mentioned a little bit earlier uh, for commercial flights, but I gather cargo is also, when it comes to Russia, cargo is a big deal. I remember being in Afghanistan and seeing obviously lots of Russian cargo planes bringing in goods. Um, will it have an impact on that as well? Yeah, it will. It, you know, I think that you're seeing, you know, the the, the closure of Alaska and, and, the, and the operation at Anchorage, a significant number of Russian aircraft transit Anchorage um, on their route, whether they're flying from, uh, from Russia to the U.S. or, or to Europe. Uh, and, you know, closing down the Anchorage fueling location is significant. They're going to have to find some other spot to land an airplane to be able to make it from, let's say, from of Vladivostok to Frankfurt, as an example, uh, you're not going to be able to make it with your aircraft if you can't land someplace. And since the U.S. and Canada have shut down operations, it's really going to put a crimp on you know the, the Russian operations, particularly from eastern Russia, Moscow not so much because uh, they can you know whip around the top of uh, the Scandinavian countries that come down if they want to. But uh, in in operations, if you're going from Moscow to Cuba. And they're, you know, or Venezuela, uh, you have very few options left in terms of how do you get your aircraft uh, to fly those longer haul uh, high density cargo operations because Anchorage is now shut down. Supply chains are already an issue. What happens when you take Russian cargo out of it? Uh, it's going to get tighter. Uh, I, I don't think that uh, every, anybody's having any delusions here in terms of you know this not having an impact on our global supply chain. I think you're going to see a significant impact, whether it whether it's on pharmaceuticals, whether it's on finished goods. Um, you know, you have a product which I find kind of interesting is that titanium um, is a significant export product coming out of Russia, uh, and 25% uh, of the world's supply of titanium comes from Russia. And guess who's the biggest customer of titanium uh, of Russian titanium? It's the aircraft manufacturers. Boeing and Airbus, and most of their airplanes are made with titanium. So, you know, they're going to be in trouble in terms of looking at getting alternative supplies of products like titanium coming out of Russia. And there's there's wheat, and there's aluminum. So there's a major R Russian industrial infrastructure that is now going to be withheld from transport into the, you know, into the world's economy. And that's going to put a further crimp on the supply chain. John, have you ever seen anything like this with all this nope. space being shut down to different different countries at different times? <laughs> no, this is this is this is this is a first. I think the speed by which it's being done. I think that you know I, I I'm waiting to see you know what's what you know what our Asian uh, colleagues are going to do because right now, like I said, the, the Western world is shut down, you know, along the Russian border. Uh, so anything going west of Russia is in trouble uh, for the Russians. South, they, they, they could go down to Turkey. They could go down to the Middle East. They couldn't go down, go down to the Emirates or Dubai. Um, but who knows for how long that's going to last. So it depends on the relationship that OPEC wants to create with Russia. They may want to keep that open for a while yet. But there's going to be a lot more pressure to kind of 
encircle Russia as much as they possibly can and to look at putting them into a squeeze. China probably will be the only outlet they'll have. Talking airspace restrictions and aviation in general, the President Biden tonight announcing that the U.S. is joining Canada and the European Union in banning Russian flights from its airspace. We've been talking about that with John Graddock, faculty lecturer and coordinator of the Aviation Management Program at McGill University in Montreal. Uh, this war, we've seen the price of oil, John, shoot up now above $100 a barrel. Last I looked, I think it was at 110 This is going to have another impact on the aviation industry as it's trying to emerge from this pandemic. What's going to happen? Well, you know, there's a couple of things. I think fuel is the one that's kind of worrying me more than anything else at this point in time. I think that, you know, once you hit 110, uh, you know, fuel is about 30 to 35 percent of all the expenses that an airline has. So and it gets to be pretty impactful when you hit those numbers, 110, dollars a barrel. So I've heard forecasts today that if this maintains this war, it kind of expands its horizon. We're probably looking at oil around 150 bucks a barrel. Um, and that will, in fact, shut down some airlines. You know, airlines will not be able to, to operate. You're, you're going to be looking at fuel surcharges that, at that we've never seen before being applied to tickets. Uh, it's really going to disrupt the, the industry and it, and it really was going to be fuel. So, you know, it, it, you know, the question about war, the question about, you know, the, the, the stability of air travel, what, you know, you know, are airlines going to want to risk flying airplanes into areas that are in, pro- in close proximity to, to war activities. And we see that, you know, they're avoiding, of course, Ukrainian airspace and, and probably about 100 miles outside of Ukraine. Uh, so there's going to be, as this war expands and involves more and more countries, um, you know, there is going to be a significant impact in terms of the airline's ability to basically try to muscle their way out of this plan. And this comes at a time when airlines are just trying to get back to normal after two very bad years. What impact will this have on on sort of on airlines in general? And, and, and what impact could it have on travelers? If you're those of us who are getting ready, hopefully, to travel again are going to find themselves with some pretty expensive ticket prices, I suspect. I, I think so. I think, you know, we were, you know, prior to this uh, war being declared, I think the airlines were very, very hopeful. In terms of looking at you know traffic coming back, I think if you look at the Canadian operators, whether they're operating domestically or internationally, there was a significant bump in terms of capacity being offered. There were sales all over the place. We have you know two new carriers showing up in Canada with you know with, with significant capacity. Um, you have you know Porter Airlines starting to make some noise to come back into Toronto. Uh, so there's a lot of capacity that was being wound up by the Canadian carriers to both address domestic demand as well as international demand. And Air Canada's schedule on the Atlantic for the summer had them going into 25 new cities. And, you know, unfortunately, most of those new cities are in Central and Eastern Europe, which is pretty close to the the war zone. So I think that, you know, Air Canada might have to come back and review some of those schedules and plans and may have to cut back some of that capacity. So it's, it is going to be a summer of uncertainty, uh, both from an operational as well as from a uh, customer safety perspective. If you add that all up, John, given what we've seen the last two years during the pandemic, um, now with this going on with the war, how much different is the airline business going to look in 2023 well, I, than it did in 2019 and 2018? 
Oh, I, I think it's going to be, it's going to, you know, it's already starting to look very different. I think, you know, if you get on an airplane today, you go through the airports, it's a very, very different experience than you had in 2018, 2019. You know, you have touchless airports, you have sanitation, you have, you know, people walking around with masks in airports and on airplanes. That's not going to go away soon. Uh, so, you know, that's going to be an impact on the business. You see that the airlines themselves are, are being very cautious in terms of looking at planning. Um, you know, traditionally, the airlines would, in fact, put seat sales on and people would book eight months, nine months, 10 months ahead of time to get best deals on, on seats and on fares around the, around the world. Now that planning cycle is down to weeks. Um, you know, airlines have no idea what the demand is going to look like in the fall of 2022. So they're putting stuff on sale in very, very short, you know, very short horizons. So the whole planning model, the whole selling of air of airfares has changed. Uh, and, you know, the odds are that consumers are going to be much more weary of buying tickets that far out because their, their money might get stuck as it was in 2020. Uh, with airlines not wanting to do refunds. So, you know, the question is, the buying habits of, of air travel passengers will change. The services you're going to get on board the airplane will change. Um, and my my perspective is that I think we're going to lose a few carriers along the way between now and 2024. They just can't afford to operate in this environment. Yeah, it's too, it's, there's a lot of risk. You know, there, it, there's commercial risk, there's operational risk, there's financial risk. And some of these carriers, you know, are not, you know, have, don't have a lot of cash on hand. Not, you know, Air Canada is, is, is flush with cash and supposedly so is WestJet. Uh, but some of the newer carriers, they're, you know, they don't have a lot of depth in terms of cash available to burn. Um, so whether it's Flare, whether it's Canada Jetlines, who hasn't got off the ground yet, whether it's Lynx, whether it's even Porter. Um, you know, there, there's a whole bunch of new carriers showing up in domestically oper- domestic operations, and that seems to be a lot of capacity in a market that's still, you know, kind of iffy when it comes to making travel decisions. Quickly, just going back to where we started on the airspace restrictions, now we're going to look, I suppose, as you mentioned, for the Asian countries to, to perhaps the Japans, the Koreas, and so on, uh, South Koreas, to try and to do the same. Is that something that you might be looking for in the in the next in the coming days? Yeah, I think so. I think, I think you know, the world, you know, I think Europe, what the EU has done, what North America has done is demonstrated to the rest of the world that, you know, these economic considerations, these economic sanctions and these airspace restrictions are having an impact. Uh, and I think that, you know, I think Putin is going to be on a squeeze. And as your previous guest mentioned, I think that China may be his only way out, but that's not going to be a cheap price for Putin to get, to get flexibility. Um, the rest of the world, with the exception of China, is probably going to try to, to put the squeeze on it to uh, force a, a change in regime in Russia. The sky is not quite as open as they have been in the past. John Graddick, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate your insight. All right, Ben. Have a good evening. Thank you. Thank you.